0: Charles Harbison has been a friend of mine for what's nearly been 20 years. We worked together at Banana Republic in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we became fast friends. He later moved to New York to study fashion, worked as a designer at several well-respected companies such as Jack Spade and Michael Kors. He was plucked to design and launch women's wear for Billy Reed, and later left to create Harbison, his modern line of clothing and accessories known best for its color blocking, and oh yeah, being worn by the likes of one Beyonce. I love this episode because we talk about all of the ins and outs of starting a fashion label and what it's like being an entrepreneur, raising capital, having his lights shut off due to not being able to afford to pay his light bill, while at the same time being chosen to speak at the White House. Perpetually needing money to fuel the business would be an understatement, and Charles has been through it all. Here's the crazy thing. If you are ever lucky enough to meet Charles, you will fast be electrified by his ear-to-ear grin that will no doubt be on his face, if for not his absolute enthusiasm for design, creativity, and discovery. He and I grab a coffee and or a meal at some point in my routine visits to Los Angeles, and I always depart utterly inspired. He's truly a special soul I feel so fortunate to call a friend, so I think you'll enjoy this one. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to The Standard Age Podcast. One of my favorite people on the planet, Charles Harbison. What's up, man? Welcome to the podcast, man. I'm excited to be here, dude. Oh, man, I'm excited to have you. Um, so I mean, it, it's almost kind of hard to start because... I know so much about you, but I feel like I'm about to learn a bunch of other stuff. That you know like, most everything about me. Well, that's the thing, right? So it's just kind of funny to be like recording and 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 putting, like just literally laying down a track. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, what our no, day-to-day cool.
1: conversations look like.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, so for, for those who are listening and don't know you, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born Where'd you grow up? What was your house like? Meaning, uh, like the environment? Not. Yeah, of course. Don't, doesn't matter if it's two, two stories or not. <laughs> yeah, tin <exactly. laughs> roof. Yeah, no.
1: But seriously, what? Uh, where'd you grow up? How was that? Um, I grew up in Lincolnton, North Carolina. Um, it's like in the foothills, below the Appalachian Mountains. Um, I had a really amazing, connected, humble uh, upbringing. That was probably made more volatile and traumatic just by way of the fact that I was growing up as a queer boy in that space. Um, Super Protestant, Baptist upbringing. My dad was a professional football player for a Spell and then came back to North Carolina after playing for the USFL and a stint with the Buffalo Bills. Um, I have faint memories of that going on while I was around probably birth to three. Um, then he came back to North Carolina. Um, both of my parents for the most part were factory workers. Um, I was super sporty but also super nerdy and super artistic as a kid. Um, I think my truest self was the, the nerdy art boy, but the version of me that I knew made my Father Proud was the sporty version of me, playing football and basketball and baseball. Yeah. Um, I was good. I was good, man. Um, and then cut to high school, just kind of found my groove in terms of, I guess, being an overachiever. Um, it felt like it was a space of safety. um, and untouchability which is what i really wanted as i was trying to figure out who i was in the world knowing that i was very different from all the archetypes around me sure um and how old
0: were you approximately when we're talking like this mentality
1: probably like 14 15 16 formative years formative super formative yeah and so many questions uh But also so much excitement because I I could feel myself finding my legs and and establishing autonomy in terms of my thinking, um, which I'm really grateful for. My my family for all of their, um, I guess, the kind of clean and some would say simplistic nature um, that working class families can have. Um, I don't find it simplistic, but I understand that, like, nomenclature around it. Uh, For all of that, they were incredibly uh, affirming of all the things that I wanted to engage myself in that weren't in line with their experiences. So whatever weird camps I wanted to go to or um, whatever weird books I was into or art classes or, um, you know, any of that stuff. Right. So I'm really grateful for that. That's
0: cool. So what what kind of factories were they in? So as workers. M-
1: my mom worked in a tool factory for about 17 years. She was a set builder at Vermont American in Lincolnton. Yeah, and um which I mean an amazing story. I remember being in high school and um by that time I knew that being an artistic and mathematically inclined kid set me up to be an architect and that i could go into that and make my family proud so i was taking a drafting class because that's all my small town high school offered in you know that was kind of in line with an architectural direction
0: strapped with a t square
1: (laughs) strapped with a t square bro (laughs) um going up to the school of technology to the community college to take classes. Oh, that's cool. Um, But in doing that, they were like, Oh, let's take a trip to a factory to see how like you draft from a tool, like draft a tool and then see it's full, like manufacturing being created. And I walked into that factory and actually saw my mom on the set line. And it was this amazing feeling of pride, but also like shame, you know, just because I, my family definitely encouraged me to and wanted me to affect a way of living that wasn't anchored in working class um, mannerisms. I see. So I was always taught to carry myself in a way that I, I could govern myself amongst other classes of people and that made them really proud that I was able to do that. But then in seeing what my mom endured for you know 17 years to support me and to um keep a roof over my head and to put me into all the things I wanted to be in and all of that it was just it was kind of embarrassing that she had to do that and she was doing it for me but also pride that my mom is just beautiful and elegant and kind and and obviously powerful um and she's doing it alongside all the women that I I knew that she worked with because they also like were on a bowling team together funny enough but that's awesome it was a whole set of like boss women but that was a really interesting I only bring that up because of the the whole like drafting into architecture thing and then watching my mom on the the set line as a factory worker um so did you feel it all that
0: and forgive me I'm not trying to put words in your mouth but kind of um like she wasn't practicing what she was preaching
1: no no not not that at all because
0: she was trying to get you to lead this different life or was that just her being a great parent like wanting a better life for her child bingo
1: that's purely what it was got it um it was just seeing what she had to do And of course i understood she came home every evening for all of my childhood dirty and smelling like machinery And you just, I mean, you're like a kid, and you're like, oh, that's what mom does, and she comes home, and she's tired and a bit cranky, but whatever. Um, Right. But then in seeing it as, at that point, a young adult, because I'm I'm 16 at this point, uh, seeing what my 16, 36, 40-some-year-old mother is taking on to support me and to make sure that i have everything i need to excel it it was i mean it brought me to tears like when i was by myself i remember crying about it like i remember being a bit disillusioned which is a healthy thing but you probably learned an immense work ethic due to that too though no yeah totally from her and uh, you know from my dad because now where was he so my parents by that point had um, divorced, but dad um, had begun coaching at my high school. So football. he coached little league football. So he coached my little league football and basketball and then some during middle school as well. And by the time I got to high school, I was only playing basketball, not football. Um, but he was coaching and then uh, I was watching him kind of navigate um, building a career in coaching because he went from that to um to like uh, junior colleges um, as an assistant coach then went into minor league football arena football which was um, a minor league team that they only played on 50 yards as opposed to 100.
0: Oh Raleigh had Raleigh Durham Skyhawks my dad coached for them. They had yeah yeah man that was I used to date one of the dancers.
1: What? (laughs) (laughs) hilarious of in course college she did, of yeah course she did um yeah dad coached for the raleigh-durham skyhawks the skyhawks and then um by the time i was graduating from high school he was coaching at clemson and i think clemson was the first d1 school that he took on and from clemson he was at lsu um so big
0: big places i mean big places i know? mean those are all just phenomenal organizations i mean Absolutely. clemson won the championship what Even this year, I don't know. I don't watch college football anymore, but like within the last five years, Clemson's won it, I believe. Yeah. LSU. Was that Les Miles years? Yes. Head coach. Yeah. I mean, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: very well-known programs.
1: Yeah. I sound like a bad son because I can't pull up all those references. No, it's it's all good. The fashion designer kids. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you were playing sports. Your dad's now, or at this time, coaching. Mm Mm-hmm. Big programs Mm -hmm. moving around, obviously.
1: Exactly, and that was the breakdown of the family for the most part.
0: So, how often did you go back and forth, or did you?
1: I didn't. So that actually was is what, namely, brought about the divorce. Is mom didn't want to move us around, and um, because he he was at you know UTEP for a spell, University of Texas El Paso. Uh, I'm just remembering all the places that he was at, and so um again one of the things i'm grateful to her for um because she really put her foot down and like and knew this is what felt safest for her kids and looking back i can see how it would have been safest for me and i'm grateful to her for that Um, but grateful to my dad um and grateful to them both for a myriad of reasons but with dad just seeing the discipline that he uh displayed when building this career and watching him do it from coaching my minor league i mean my you know junior league football and basketball teams you know kind of working
0: his way up the ladder
1: very much so like literally to the extent that just last year he finally got his first professional job he was coaching for arizona cardinals um, he left after a year and went back to university. He's now at Appalachian State to be closer to family, to my grandmother and everything. Another great, great program. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I'm incredibly proud of him for, for watching him on this ascent um, and the dedication and um, just the the perseverance that it takes to build something when there's not a reference point for you. Um, so, yeah, kudos to him for that. I and mean, there's a lot
0: to do with, you know, business in that regard.
1: Business and negotiations and um pivoting. Yep. Um, watching programs completely scrub the whole coaching staff, you know, immediately and then having to find another position, maintain a network so that you always have a warm lead for a position. Um, and dad is largely Um, secured as a coach because of his recruiting capabilities so again it speaks to um, just being able to navigate relationships and people and um, all of that and and really casting vision to these to these boys namely um, who he's recruiting and he often recruits in very low income areas Um, that's become a bit of his specialty um, particularly kids of color um so yeah that's awesome yeah man so that kind of
0: takes us you know through your formative years and then through high school then you went to nc state i did which I is did. getting us closer to how we met but so what did you study at nc state
1: um i initially studied architecture and once i got there it felt quite um i don't know i felt boxed in by it um and low-key, I just didn't want to study that much history. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, but in my freshman year, fell in love with design fundamentals and materials in a way that I wasn't allowed to in, in high school because we just didn't have that extent of a program there. Um, so then I fell in love with fabrics and took on a, um, an art and design degree and also a textile science degree. Right. Um, So art and design in that I could concentrate on the fine arts and really build up my um, artist process and feel free. And then textile science to just help secure me a job like if it didn't feel like the creative um, point of view or the the creative um, professional route was going to be lucrative. You know, I could pivot to textile chemistry and, and things of that nature Um, In the end, by my senior year, I brought them together. Um, I'm grateful to my uh, design and textile professors because they really helped and encouraged me to bring it together. And I made my first clothes in my senior year using fabrics that I largely created. So some I wove, some I dyed. Um, Yeah. So that program was amazing. Uh, So...
0: I also went to North Carolina state for those of you who don't know. Um, so from that perspective at, during those years, um, centennial campus, which is a, a kind of a, a minor, like almost like a satellite campus off the main campus from that university was really evolving and being developed during those years that you and I were there, especially, um, Tell tell everyone a little bit about why. Well, it, it it's a famous program. It is. Frankly. It's, it's kind they developed of, fabrics for NASA, I think. Yeah. For like the
1: technology um, on that campus is, you know, just it's ahead of everyone else. Um, fiber science, um, performance textiles, um, the fibrous makeup of a myriad of things is what things is what we had to study while I was there. It's an amazing program, uh, but it isn't a very creative program, particularly when I was there because, like you said, like they were just building out the world-renowned nature of the program and of the campus. So, you know, now it's far more world-renowned than it was then, even though it was still at the front end of, of the research. That it Yeah, was I doing. feel like
0: it was maybe it lends itself a little bit more towards the science side of Uh, the apparel industry or at least fabrics
1: science and manufacturing um technology that kind of thing um but that's why i'm grateful for my design background because it's what allowed me to really um kind of innocently and and naively walk into this world of clothes making
0: so that brings us to banana republic banana where we met working Crabtree Valley Mall. Shout out. <laughs> um, so Crab what, did, Bar- whatever, what do you remember from your time at Banana? Wow. What did you learn? <laughs> um, all
1: the cuts of the chinos. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, man. I could fold some chinos like there's nobody's business.
1: Oh, man. Um, my time Banana Republic then, for us, I'll say for me, was the kind of... Aspirational way in which one would dress, you know, like
0: peak metrosexual years, peak that I believe met- that peak, bro, that would have been a hashtag had hashtags existed. Oh, yeah, because this is Boy. what
1: 2000? This is 2000, yeah, yeah. Jeez. So we're dating ourselves, but Jeez, man, this is 2000, so 2001
0: peak, peak metrosexual,
1: peak like donning a color chino. And you know, don't ask me my my uh, sexual preference because I'm confident in who I am. <laughs> um, a colored polo, you know, a pop of color. I feel like I feel like the the actual verbiage "pop of color" was born in those years.
0: All I can think of is just on a big sign, stretch poplin.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, like how tight. Oh, also guys showing their bodies in button downs because of that stretch poplin so yeah, you could size right. down cuz the darts the darts right. in the back of the shirt right it was a european fit so the boys were like feeling themselves dude
0: <laughs> yeah those were interesting years to say the least even fashion-wise just and some of that stuff it kind of hasn't gone
1: away kind of has it gone. it it really for me it's like the birth of like what daggy dressing looks like now like it, anyone's going to have a regular ass flat front chino and like they're going out button down. Like every guy has that. Right. The going out shirt. The
0: going out shirt, man. Yeah, that's right. And they weren't, they weren't as whimsical as say like seven diamonds.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah.
0: But, but yeah, definitely the going out shirt. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of the foray into that.
1: Regular ass relaxed fit jeans. But then the going out shirt. Right, ready for that date in a square-toed shoes. Square toe, the squarest of toes. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so maybe a study in what not to do <laughs> these days. Um, Absolutely. so you mentioned growing up. What was coming out like for you? It was because uh, I I I don't even know the story.
1: Yeah, well, it didn't happen until H- yeah, how graduating long college.
0: Okay, so you're like 22 then.
1: Yeah, exactly. So. Okay. Um, I mean, I knew. I remember kissing a little boy for the first time in nursery school, in like the tubes, like on the um. It was in Kitty College, Lincoln, North Carolina. Shout out to Miss Betty, Um, and I won't say his name. No, please don't. Rebel flag waving, Uh, like oh, interesting Republican, like God. But anyway, we were playing and. I remember us just sitting there looking at each other and then we kiss each other on the mouth and kept playing. And it just felt, I still remember it because it felt like, Oh, that was cool. But then eventually I felt like, wait, do people not do that? Like, because I can remember being encouraged to like, Ooh, like what little girls do you like? Or, um, don't you want that to be your girlfriend? And all these kinds of things that, you know, how particularly then, we would kid with kids. Well, in in North Carolina and in North you know, Carolina, Bible belt, exactly all of that, and and then also growing up Baptist, I would hear certain things in in church just about you know kind of lascivious lives or or you know the lives we aren't supposed to lead in order to be closer to God, and I can remember references to homosexuality, and though I knew I w- I didn't know fully what that meant. I knew that the idea of two men particularly engaging in something intimate wasn't right. And so, and and kids are really intuitive and really smart and most of your time as a child is spent listening as opposed to talking. So you take in inordinate amounts of information. So I just remember taking it in and, and knowing early on it like, whoa, this is not cool. So um, it wasn't until university graduating that um i traveled a lot by then i spent a summer in new york wow i just forgot about this i spent a summer uh interning in new york and i interned at jack spade and at michael kors yeah sure and while i was there my bosses were like handsome metropolitan well-spoken intelligent commanding strong men and then one by one, I figured out that most of them were gay. And it was an image of homosexuality outside of Will on Will and Grace of someone who their their version of homosexuality wasn't the campy version, although there's nothing wrong with that. It was just a version that was different and one that I related to. And I was like, oh, like these guys are everything. I, I want to be this wealthy. I want to be this handsome, I want to be this well-dressed, well-spoken, commanding uh, and wait, and they have partners or they date men or and I remember at one point they would talk to me while I was in New York as if I too was gay and then one day they asked me, they're like wait, you are gay, right? And I was like um, I'm bi, I'm bi (laughs) and I can remember it coming out of my mouth like whoa i just said i'm bi like
0: as if that was a huge leap it was a
1: huge leap interesting i never engaged with the guy like i never kissed a guy I hugged him. i mean like outside of you know being six five years old um i didn't have any of that in my in my experience so i was literally just going off of this internal pull that i felt to certain images and certain people and like how I would get chills and butterflies from like guys and not girls in the same way, even though I had girlfriends and wouldn't engage with them sexually, um, not intercourse, but it was just like, wow, like, I think this is, this is something I want to pay more attention to and t- take a look at. So anyway, uh, after that, coming back to North Carolina to complete my last, my senior year and It was on the tail end of that. I came back, I broke up with my girlfriend um, by the end of the school year and decided to take um, a post uh, teaching English and studying Central Asian textiles in Uzbekistan. And I studied there one summer. The summer before New York, I studied in Turkmenistan. Um, And then there was a job that I was going for at Jack Spade they ended up not approving the new position, so I, when I didn't get that job, this opportunity was on the side, and I was just like, "Okay, I'll go. I'll go away for a year." And it was the best decision I made, I think, in my entire life. That's awesome.
0: Well, w- what about that experience was phenomenal? I mean, obviously, getting outside of anybody's element, right, or of mm-hmm. your own element rather, anyone getting outside of their own element is
1: is a phenomenal way to to learn. Right. Um, An amazing one. And you're forced. You look at everything um, when you are outside of your kind of mother context. Like everything is up for consideration.
0: I know it sounds funny, but when I graduated college, I traveled around Europe by myself. And I know this is a horrible thing for me to say, but it was the first time in my life where I really, truly. And this is almost wrongful, but where I felt like a minority,
1: Mm, I hear that. And that was
0: really just due to, you know, um, language barriers in certain cases. And then just culturally, right. So it wasn't racially obviously, um, necessarily, but, and I think that you grow from that. Mm -hmm. And especially me, middle-class white guy from North Carolina, Mm -hmm. never really had to want for anything. Very fortunate. Um, and especially for like today's climate but mm-hmm. you know back in say 2002 you know you really learning a lot taking myself out of that element so going back to you obviously no no question that you experienced something oh, similar oh
1: god yeah it it i mean being in the third world um, a former communist country still grappling with that um, right? and wanting to engage with the Um, like the indigenous culture there, for lack of a better word. So, you know, not wanting to be in Tashkent in the capital city and and learning Russian, but wanting to be in Samarkand or in the villages outside of Samarkand, in Bukhara, um, learning Uzbek, engaging with Uzbek students, Uzbek families, learning more about Uzbek culture and and particularly the the textiles of the region and... um, it was just in doing so as at that point, you know, a 5'11 black guy, black American guy. It was just, it was a whole clusterfuck for them and for me, but in an amazing way. Um, and I can remember my mom sending me some magazines just to kind of... Um, Stay in touch. Exactly. Right. And one of them was like um, this fashion magazine I'd subscribed to and she'd gotten some of the magazines to at... Uh, at our home and sent those to me and i just longed to be operative in this craft of fashion design just seeing the images i just longed for it and those longings that ex- that i experienced while in uzbekistan i know they still kind of are a bit of a they're they govern the direction that i go today it was clothing it was beautiful images it was you know frankly speaking beautiful men it was like all of these things i was like wow like this is who i am right because i was removed from anything not anything that's not true i was removed from so many culture comforts and uh culture um kind of knowledge right so then everything that i was presented with I wasn't responding to it from muscle memory, right like I I what did I really want? did I really want what was I was I longing for a fry or was I longing for like a burger or a pizza like you just there are certain things that just end up coming to the surface and those things came to the surface so I left there after a year and went to New York
0: and that's where you started with who
1: That's where I started I went back to school and went to Parsons.
0: That's right. That's right. Parsons. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I meant to ask you. Like, wh- how did that even enter the picture? Was that because you were looking for jobs and couldn't find one, or you yeah. felt there was like a void in your resume, or what? bingo, both. Okay.
1: Both. I knew that I would be more, um, I, I marketable. Have, marketable. Yeah. With Parsons on my resume, and I just wanted to be better. Um, my sketching skills were amazing, and and I already knew that from both of the companies and the directors that I'd worked for, who were amazing to me. Um, but neither of those collections were approving a new assistant position and no one was leaving. So I decided, okay, I'll go to school, I'll go to grad school, and I will continue um, interning there at both collections. And I did, and I'm really grateful that I did. Um, But after leaving Parsons, which was amazing because of the relationships I built, and I'm the, sure the networking's insane. The networking. I mean, it wasn't insane, um, but just having something. It, it helped a country boy from North Carolina safely enter and feel like he could have his footing in this, you know, super metropolitan city. And, and the industry. And the industry. Yeah, exactly. So uh, but after Parsons, I actually take, took a job. Designing home textiles for Bloomingdale's private label. Interesting. Because all the fashion jobs I was finding were not paying a living wage. I did not have a trust fund like so many of the other entering um, fashion designers into the industry. So I decided to go back to one would say my first love and that's fabric. And they paid me a living wage. And I was with them for two years before I got a job at Michael Kors in collection. So
0: what did you learn from the Bloomingdale's role that maybe you even still use today? That's a good question. Or was it just more of the same, you know, with fabrics and such?
1: No, I I, I mean, it was not more of the same because I did learn in a bit of a safer space How to create more modern product because the many of the applications and fabrics that I was engaging myself with in North Carolina was based on something traditional because that is the kind of that's the aesthetic dialogue of North Carolina. So it wasn't always as modern as I would have loved it to have been. And I affected modernity, thank God, for Banana Republic, but also just the extent of research that I would do. Yeah, But still being at, you know, 11 Penn Plaza, um, it was just, it was a safe place to navigate new references. And, and um, they were all quite loving to me because they really saw my talent, but I was very young for the office um i learned how to engage myself in a corporate um environment um it helped me uh, understand work politics um and the art of negotiations and things like that in less of a high-paced atmosphere so that when i did make the the shift to high fashion cuz i went from that to runway collection stuff um I was a bit more versed, well-versed and prepared to self-protect because fashion is volatile oftentimes in the work environments.
0: Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment and thank you for listening. Um, Also, if you could rate the podcast, it only takes a couple seconds. It really helps with the search function and other people finding the podcast. Um, In addition to that, go to the website, standard-h.com, there you can sign up for our email list. I randomly send out special offers that are exclusive to email subscribers, so you may want to take part in that. While you're on the site, another great way to support us is to visit the online shop, obviously, where you can pick up a hat, t-shirt, even a pair of our shorts which actually have an amazing fit and happen to be on sale currently. In addition to that, you can save an additional 20% off your total purchase with the code PODCAST at checkout. I really can't do this without your help, and I sincerely thank you again for listening. Uh, Really appreciate all the support and all the feedback everyone has been giving me. Um, It really does make me feel like a million bucks, so thank you for that. Uh, Let's get back to my conversation with Charles. What were some of the, the designers that you sort of looked up to? As you were going through either college or, or Parsons for example yeah um, I mean obviously
1: you worked for Michael Kors yeah I loved Michael's work um, but when I look historically it was always Yves Saint Laurent um, Jeffrey Bean now Yves Saint Laurent
0: the man the man and the brand and as opposed at to the Tom Ford time right yeah because your backgrounds Tom Ford's background Right, architecture followed yeah. by fashion. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, but you're you're talking the man. Yeah, YSL. definitely
1: the man and the brand. I think by that point, Stefano Pilati was designing Yves Saint Laurent, and I really connected to that as well. Also, the lit smoking and and the kind of feminist nature of his clothes always linked with me because my mom was a pantsuit wearing woman, so that imagery was always one of like beauty for me. So I just the women in my family definitely navigated in pantsuits and in pants and they were, they were working women. So they were sporty. And, and I remember my mom playing softball when I was young. So I just related to how Eve's, um, approached women's wear in that sense. And then also the, the kind of ethnic references that he had no problem bringing into the collections as I did research. And I loved it. Um, Jeffrey Bain, Michael Kors, uh, who else did I particularly, I do remember loving Stephen Burroughs because I made it a point to research like black designers, so I'd have some frame of reference for that because I, obviously everywhere I went into there was a dearth of that identity and I was black, so I wanted to know (laughs) who the fuck came before, right? Sure. Um, but the sense of joie de vivre and color in Stephen's work, the imagery all of that really resonated with me. Um yeah. Those I mean, I'm sure there's that's there's a healthy many mix. More. Yeah, which is why my collection has a healthy mix of it too, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I I think that's a good transition because obviously Harbison was born in New York City. It was um currently we're in Los Angeles. Um so take us through a little bit of what launching Harbison was like, like early days. Like, yeah. what was was there a particular moment that you were just like, my God, like, I just, I have to start my own brand.
1: Yeah, dude. <laughs> it was definitely that. What day was that? <laughs> um, not, not literally but, on the calendar. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there was a bit of a day because I'd worked by that point for, I guess, seven years in New York. So I'd been from Bloomingdale's to, cores to Luca Luca to Billy Reed and you launched th- Billy's Women's Wear. I did. I did. That was my first director post. I'm really still incredibly grateful to him uh for entrusting that to me at like 29. Um but yeah. Um he after that was over, they, you know, the numbers weren't what they wanted them to be. And so they let me go. And while on severance, my then boyfriend and I decided to travel to the Virgin islands to see my best friend, Kelly. She was living there with her husband. Um, She's a physician's assistant. So we were there and I, I took just kids with me, the Patty Smith um, book about her relationship with Robert, Robert Mapplethorpe. And I took it because I was a bit of a hipster in New York. I was a Brooklyn boy. I lived in Brooklyn the entire 11 years I was in New York. So I was reading it and just fell in love with these two these two individuals. Like, I had researched the images and, and knew visually they were, like, beautiful. Robert was, you know, he's a key image maker of queer art. Um, Patty, I really only knew only through the filter of Because the Night, her song, her key song. Sure. Um, But after reading that book, I just fell in love with the two of them and fell in love with how they arguably took on characteristics of the opposing gender. Um, Patty was the more confident um, initiative of the two, Um, a bit rough around the edges, and Robert was the fragile... Um, seemingly more emotional of the two Um, and we think characteristically of the man and the woman having different um, uh, fulfilling a different role than that and so the beauty of their relationship really intrigued me and excited me and by that point I had established myself as a guy who had no problem wearing like women's clothes as a man in the world like if I wanted a long cardigan or I wanted a coat that had you know, a nipped in shoulder, a nipped in waist, or, um, I wanted a shirt that wasn't a shirt. It was more of a blouse. I'd, I'd really opted into those aesthetics and didn't really see it as anything more than finding the pieces that I wanted, um, that weren't being offered on the men's rack. But when I read about these two, I was like, wow, like this is a thing, like, this is beautiful, these archetypes. And, I was like, I, I, I want to make these clothes. Like, I, no one's making clothes in the way that I wear them, in the way that I want them. And no one's making clothes that tell my story. So I came back, wrote a business plan, came back from the Virgin Islands to New York, wrote a business plan, and sought money, Um, just some beginning money, and went to my dad. And my dad um, gave me my first few thousand to make some samples, and I'm still so grateful to him. For that and just my life savings that I built at that point and on unemployment um, started making samples and really thought in the end, you know what, maybe this will be a refresher for my portfolio. Maybe this will help me find another job and take the next step because I'm I was at a director position at that point. And really felt like I needed to show more to a potential employer. So I was like, I will just make these samples. I'll shoot them. A stylist friend introduced me to this photographer, Dan Dealey, who I still love today, who at the end shot several lookbooks for me. Almost all my lookbooks uh, for Harbison in the time that I was in New York. Um, and shot the images and decided, oh, this is beautiful. Like, I will show a few people just to get their their take on it. And I said all that to say, all of this is really born out of the network that I built over all those years of working. So, um, Catherine Neal Schaefer, who is Sam Schaefer's wife, Anna Wintour's daughter-in-law. She was my stylist um, at Luca. She also presented me to Billy Reid for that post. Um, and I was like, oh, she's like, what are you up to now? I was like, oh, I made some clothes and shot some images. She's like, um, well, send it over to me. I was like, okay, no big deal. Send it over to her, and she said, "Charles, these are really good." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I mean, I, I well, they like, are. I mean, yeah, I love them. Yeah, and I, I, I still navigated the industry like the kind of nerdy boy from North Carolina. Like, I still had a bit of a a lack of confidence as a result of that. Those identities, right? And fashion beats you up so i just i wasn't sure right and, and i just decided to not make a big deal of it until she did and she's like you need to come to vogue and i was like what What, what do you mean <laughs> like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> um i was like this is not a thing like no one's bought these like this isn't a thing she's like you need to come i i was like okay what so did I, she
0: what did she mean by that you need to come to vogue obviously yeah. not to work there
1: no but she she um also, I didn't say this. She had um, a stylist post at Vogue as well. So she would style independently, but she also was like an editor, a stylist in residence at Vogue. She's yeah. Anna Wintour's daughter-in-law. Um, so she's mentioned this to me. At the same time, I had been uh, eating at Aurora. I still remember this. In Soho, um, close to the West Side Highway. And Patrick Robinson walked by the window one day. Patrick is an amazing fashion designer, black guy. He's had posts at Paco Raban, Armani, Gap, Pirielis. Um and these are creative director roles. Exactly, yes. Not just design roles. Exactly. Thank you. Uh and Patrick was always I love his work. Um, I also loved how he presented himself in the industry. So I saw him, I ran out, I was like, hey Patrick, like I really look up to you. I'd love to have coffee or something one day. And he was really cool about it. He was like, okay. So I remember riding my bike from Bushwick all the way back to, I can't remember what restaurant in Soho a few days later and talking to him. And then he was like, so, you know, what are you doing in the midst of between jobs, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, well, I made some clothes and shot some images. And he's like, send them over to me. I was like, okay. So I sent him over to him, and he's like, Charles, these are really good. I want to show my wife, Virginia Smith. Virginia is the European market and accessories director at Vogue. So both these individuals see my clothes and want to refer me to Vogue, and I don't even know what that means. Now, this
0: is the same American Vogue. This is the same American Vogue, so not, yeah.
1: Not your American Vogue. I still don't even know what that means. Like, I've just been working in studios seven eight years I I didn't I didn't know okay like what does that even mean Um, and so um, both Virginia Smith and Mark Holgate um, Mark Holgate received my lookbook by way of Catherine Neal Schaefer so then they're like come to Vogue with the collection we would love to see it and I arrive and they're like these are great and I'm just like (laughs) so well
0: right right i mean i'm sure you were floored but
1: i was i mean not only floored, just like wondering what is happening
0: like do you belong there kind
1: of thing yeah exactly like i live in a fourth floor walk up in bushwick it was cool though that was a cool apartment shout out to that apartment thank you homie so
0: real quick though tell describe your first collection what what pieces were a part of it
1: um so the key muses were patty and robert um, and my themes were bauhaus and sport Uh, bauhaus because the modernist movement was the key um, design process that i learned in undergrad it still is so close to me Um, form over function is really i think a beautiful concept um and cleanliness and thoughtfulness, discipline and design, all of those things I love.
0: Lots of repetition, right? Exactly. Shapes. Repetition,
1: the beauty of repetition, yep. um, and systems, all of those sorts of things. So that and sport, just because I definitely wanted to infuse my love of outerwear with something active in the world. Um so those were the key things um i guess key pieces from the collection were a color block coat um some gender neutral outerwear a gender neutral moto jacket um and some bold colored suiting so th- those were the key things a few other color block pieces um but i took the collection to to vogue and they were incredibly supportive and they're like charles we'd love to write a story about you um i was like Okay, I was like, but I don't have any stores. I remember saying this to them, like, like I have zero distribution. I have zero distribution. And they're like, we'll help you with that. And I was just like, okay, thank you. And I still don't even know what any of this means. I've never like had a business, started a business, navigated, um, a like the kind of financial tier of a fashion business. I'd never really been in a sales meeting. Um, so these I, were just samples. These were just one-off samples. Everything
0: made there in New York City? Everything made in Garment District?
1: Garment District, yeah. Using makers that I'm so grateful for that I um, had worked with at different posts.
0: What were some of the fabrics you used? Was it wool? Was it cotton?
1: Um, the key outerwear, like um, there was a double-faced wool, a wool Melton, which is like a, a nice sturdy, almost felted um outerwear wool um in charcoal in like fireman red and in a deep um emerald green um and also a caramel like a a melange caramel and the moto was in a nice buffalo leather um in black but then also a beautiful really really super deep almost black green that did quite well um the suiting was in a tropical weight wool, um, really quite flat. Uh, I I didn't really want anything with texture, because uh, I I I wanted it to just be about the color, and really found this really beautiful statement red. Um, and then we also did a wool felt cap in a few colors, um, and then the shirting was in a silk cotton. Um, by that point, most of the brands—actually, that's not true—all of the brands that I designed for had a love for and a brand rooted in luxury fabrics, um, and they were, by and large, all natural fiber. And so um, that dialogue I brought into this collection, and I still I still have an affinity, a, a strong affinity for natural fibers uh, for a myriad of reasons. Um, but yeah, those were some of the, the fabrics.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the structure of the business from the get-go. I mean, obviously, you were kind of a one-man band initially. What And what year was this? 2013? 12?
1: Yes, thir- 13. 13, yeah. okay. It's
0: almost six years ago. Mm-hmm. So wh- what happens next? You go to Vogue. They want to write a story about you.
1: Yes, I have no distribution they say, we want to help you get some stores. We just need to see a little more product um, because I hadn't. It was still a few samples. So then I went back into my piggy bank and, and dug even deeper and basically cleared it all out to create an additional round of, of pieces. And then I had an independent presentation in April. So literally six years ago. because th- At this point, I showed them the collection, I think, in March. It was after Paris Fashion Week when they'd come back. Um, And then about four to six weeks after that meeting, I had a presentation. Um, They came to the presentation. It was held in an art gallery in Chelsea, Um, a friend and who I wanted to be my business partner. um, But unfortunately, fortunately for her, unfortunately for me, she decided to build out her family. And so we ended up not working together. But she helped me find uh, an art gallery to show the work. Showed it really independently. Um, friends modeled. Um, some kind of lower-level agencies offered me models who were all amazingly lovely. It was manned by my friends. Uh, no, this
0: was just a presentation, right? Exactly. So for many people, most folks out there feel like fashion is all about a runway and fashion shows. Not at all. All a lot of independents, right? They mm-hmm. do these presentations where. Models literally just stand still. Exactly. And some on boxes to be taller than others and Mm -hmm. such. Um, That collection, the subsequent pieces that you went back into your piggy bank for, for whatever reason, I just remember this almost Mondrian-like color blocking. Mm -hmm. It's yellow, Mm -hmm. red, Mm -hmm. blue, Mm kind of like cobalt. Yep. With like black. Mm Mm-hmm. Was it Mondrian? Was what was yes, the definitely. yeah definitely okay. yeah definitely that was yeah. the inspiration.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm always I, I often don't even drop those names because I'm always drawing from modernist painters and artists, um, particularly those who color block from Joseph Albers and and Bryce Martin to Mondrian, uh, and, and you know furniture designers like Cabousier and. Um, if one would want to call Brancusi a modernist, but yeah, that that kind that is my wheelhouse. Um, that's where I feel most confident in color. I don't allow myself to stay there because I have to push and challenge myself. And I've definitely over the years established a dialogue for pastels and off colors and things of that nature. And I still love those, but in those days it was very rooted, right, in that palette. Well, pretty straightforward. Yeah. And so what was the reception like? It was great. Vogue sitting representatives um, to the presentation. It was about two, I think we were there three hours, maybe two, two and a half hours. Um, was that Milk Studios? Where no, were it was in an art gallery in Chelsea. Oh, an art gallery. You yeah. said that. I'm yeah, sorry. this is before made and, and sponsorships and everything. This is just me, not on any Fashion Week calendar literally me doing this just to present more work to what ended up being my marquee supporters particularly in the beginning of the business um yeah made invitations all utilizing my friends all of it and i'm i'm so each one of y'all have such a humongous place in my heart because of those years particularly those beginning years of harvesting where everything was rooted in gifted labor from my friends. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was well received. Um, soon after that, I got my first stock which was ECRM in Chicago and Vogue secured me for their, um, September issue and wrote an article. It was my, my, pr- my first article ever. And then basically announced me to the world in their biggest issue, in their of biggest issue of the year. The year. Yeah. I'm, Still, Jennifer Lawrence was on the cover. Um, I still love that image. It was myself and... I have it on my bookshelf. That's my boy. Um, It was me and Was it Suju Park?
0: I mean, no offense, but I couldn't tell you who else was in that magazine other than you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Dude, that image is still... like She was in the color block coat with me and I was in the black moto and it was a magical day. I had no idea that I'd be in the image i thought i was just bringing samples to the shoot and then they're like so are you ready to go and i was like what do you mean they're like charles you're in the image and i was like i don't have anything to wear <laughs> so we're already all the way at um at the pier so i had to go all the way to bushwick i think i probably dropped an ordinate amount of money on a cab just to get over there and i had no money these days so i was basically like i cleaning out the account to do just
0: figure it out later
1: yo bro figure it out later and went and brought the moto jacket and and the jean and came back to the shoot and they plopped me right down i remember having a sty on my eye a really bad one because i was really overworking myself in those days and quite stressed and and alone i am single so um I had this massive sty on my eye and, and luckily I have some frames and I was like, okay, well I'll, guys, I have this sty. They're like, don't worry about it. We're we'll it out. And so they shot me at an angle so that the sty was off camera. Um, but yeah, even on my Instagram, I, I, I still have a video of myself talking about that day and with a massive red sty on one of my eyes, just by way of all the stress I was enduring, but still so grateful sure
0: so grateful man god I can't imagine that yeah so the sty that's
1: news to me <laughs> yeah that's that damn sty man but yeah
0: Ecrum, my first stockist so for those who don't know Ecrum, what other lines do they
1: carry just so they know the magnitude from like Yoji Yamamoto and Comme des Grasson all the way up to Saint Laurent and Balmain and just every mark, every marquee designer on on the planet Ikram is a beautiful store in Chicago and she herself is an amazing woman and I'm forever grateful to her.
0: So first article, September issue of Vogue. Yes. First stockist, Ikram in Chicago.
1: And Satine in LA, I must say. And Satine, right. God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, those are my first two. And then the issue came out in September. Fashion week was in August and on the heels of the September issue coming out, um, made... No, no, this still wasn't made fashion week. No, a PR agency and a showroom reached out to me and offered me um, support um, just on a kind of a benevolent package. And uh, I've been showed kind of a larger collection on the calendar or day zero of fashion week um, that... September yeah and it was what I think is one of the most beautiful collections I've done Um, I worked feverishly through the summer to pull it out and did and kind of ate up the end of my budget but found my first investor during that time as well um, which I'm incredibly grateful for still
0: so let me interrupt you just for one segment because my next question was going to be about fundraising and raising money, um, fashion the epitome of a revolving door of of money. <laughs>
1: it's insane.
0: Can talk, you know, talk to us, walk us through what is that process like? Seeking out funding, you know, the proverbial handout, if you will, for the lack of a better description.
1: Yeah, it is. It's different for everyone, and it has a lot to do with what your network looks like. And for me, you know, being a country boy, group working class, poor, I didn't come with uh, a Rolodex of wealth, um, familial wealth at all that I could speak to. Thankfully, my dad had those initial few thousands that he believed in me in the beginning to give me, but that's really it. And honestly, in those days, things were so tight. Like some months, my parents were having to like scrounge and find money to pay my rent you know like i and friends were feeding me at times you know like it was really incredibly hard right but what i did have the good sense to do was just i loved what was happening so much and i was so grateful that it was happening that it really cut so much of my ego to where i remember writing this massive email to all y'all like you know i'm This is really turning into something significant. Um, I'd done research to figure out terms and just basically sent it out to all my friends saying, if you knew someone who would be open to have a conversation with me, I'd be super grateful. And then my friend Victor, um, who he and I weren't close at all, but Victor um, was a part of the art world, and so he knew what this was like. And he connected me to my first investment opportunity, and I got it over the line. Um, and I just uh, but that kind of monopolized my time for a few months Um, and I have any money to make another collection I didn't have any money to um, to ship production for the orders that were secured from Satine and Ikram so there's all these things that summer that I needed to figure out and um so I, that
0: so that injection of capital did those things. Bingo,
1: exactly. Um, it did those things and it started me on what became a very vicious cycle for me, one that I wanted to opt out of um, as soon as possible. Right. Not from the making of clothes, but just the cash flow aspect of having a wholesale-based business in fashion. Um, it's one of investing large amounts of money at every stage and all of the, and the, the capital investment is from the brand um, whether from sampling then to the sales process um, and procuring those sales and in the investment in um, in sales materials and in, in a sales person uh, sales space so not just the samples but then that photography the touting of orders, and then when and if those orders come in, then the capital to produce orders because by and large, you're not going to receive a deposit as a startup brand. So then you're then investing in making clothes that you will then get paid from on terms. And particularly in those days, stores weren't holding well to their terms. Um, and if you were lucky
0: it was net 30 if meaning, you were meaning 30 days the store the store has 30 days to write that check to you so you're after they received the product yeah and they could have even sold it hypothetically yeah exactly within the 30 days
1: mm-hmm. yeah or even some of the terms were set up to where if they didn't sell it they returned it to you so you were really unless you hit it really hard and really big in the beginning you are always going to be in the red and fashion businesses of like magnanimous size have gone tens of years without turning a profit because of this kind of structure. And then eventually, um, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to fully go on the record saying this, but I'll, you know, whatever. Um, there's a key brand that I know of that, um, the designer is a celebrity or a celebrity child, and it took ten years for them to turn a profit sure. and They're a brand that we all know and it rolls off of our tongues so walking into that as a newbie and really you know not having a fashion business background um try really not having a lot of that in my schooling because it was so creative focused um it was incredibly stress inducing and at times debilitating but again what was stronger than that fear and stronger than that stress was my undying love for what I did I
0: think the the interesting thing is is not turning a profit for example happens in the tech industry Mm -hmm. all the time
1: all the time. And I
0: don't know about you, but I feel like it's not even talked about. The only one that I ever in recent memory is Amazon. Mm-hmm. But that's only because they're worth a gajillion dollars now. Mm-hmm. So, oh, well, that was just
1: off the cuff. Yeah, we
0: weren't even profitable. Ha 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 ha. You know, it's almost like
1: the good old days. Mm-hmm. And, and people, people throw crazy amounts of cash at, at tech businesses. Yeah. And the the percentage is crazy. Like it's so low for the... For the number of tech businesses that actually make it,
0: high risk, high reward. Yeah, I mean that's what you're banking on, right? Mm,
1: but there's so many losers out there. But I guess you could <laughs> say the
0: same for fashion too. You know, I mean it's, it is high risk.
1: You can, and
0: it can be high reward.
1: Yes, it can be.
0: So, yeah, you know, it's it was just something that came to mind just now, just thinking about that.
1: But to your point, that the high reward nature of fashion now is so different from what it was five. 10 years ago. And that's the amazing thing about fashion is it's so evolving and it's so respondent to culture um, that the way in which one would build a fashion business today is not at all like I began to do it just six years ago. All
0: right. So we were going to talk about this later. So let's 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 wrap about it now. What how so just expand on what you were saying? Well, like how would you do it now?
1: How would I do it now? I mean, I definitely don't look back at that boy and think that he did anything wrong. Like, he did the absolute best that he could um, with the resources he was given. And and I do think that boy was quite ingenious. And I really love and respect him. So much so that I do talk about him in the third person. Um, Because I'm not that same guy. Right. We evolve. Sure. Exactly. That's fair. Um, But there is... The the direct-to-consumer market today is just so well-oiled, and it was definitely not then being able to create a product, market it directly to a consumer online, hold inventory, ship directly, all the the mechanisms to do that well, even from how to build the website, even the fulfillment aspects, the payment aspects, All of these things are so automated now.
0: Yeah, you get money immediately. You
1: get money immediately. It's in your account the next day. It's in your account the next day. And I've seen brands build um, amazing businesses far more quickly because of that. Granted, many of them skimp on um, quality and things of that nature um, because there's not the oversight of a store, right? Because a store is a bit of, of a filter right there. You do have accountability to deliver a certain caliber of product, um, because that filter and that liaise to customers in there. Like you do see some brands delivering shitty stuff, and eventually, yes, like the customer becomes privy to that, they stop buying, and then there's a downturn. But as far as hitting the market immediately and getting some cash in your pocket, all the means by which someone can independently advertise on all forms of social media, and they are there are so many you know, just well, um, utilized social media platforms. Um, and then, you know, I'm also part of an influencer marketing tech platform, um, called sponsors one. And we, we are helping to encourage the direct to consumer route by incentivizing micro influencers, but even just that verbiage that, Um, that phrase is not something that would have been said six years ago. It didn't exist. It was not a thing. So there's just so many, and and I'm touting startups now to bring them onto that platform. And and it's a key platform for Harbison's um, next steps here in Los Angeles. But you can utilize all those things, right? Um, And then the nature of celebrity styling is, it's a world that is, you know, so accessible now you can just dm so many stylists who you know style different celebrities and so the path to getting your product on a key individual is seemingly easier if your product is stellar but it's all these access points that before the access point was the industry now the access point is either the industry, i.e. the fashion industry, or it's social media.
0: This episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California. Uh, Tim and Jana Jackson own a really great store that carries tons of independent watches. Uh, very haute horology, very high-end. The finishing on the movements of these types of brands are absolutely second to none. Um, incredible works of art they also have fine jewelry as the name would imply Tim is GIA certified they also have a goldsmith on staff there in the store Uh, so they could pretty much help you out in a multitude of ways for your jewelry and watch needs so check them out uh, passionfinejewelry.com as well as Tim's blog independentintime.com for just a wide range of information that you can get there Thanks so much again for listening and back to the conversation. So as somebody who's dressed Beyonce.
1: That happened a few times.
0: What was that like? How did that oh come man, up? That I mean, magical. this is prior to Instagram, right?
1: Yeah, well, so it, in the midst of Instagram, yeah. um, It was stellar. It was amazing. It saved my business one year. Um, I'm so grateful to Zarina Akers. Um, Zarina is... One of Beyonce's key stylists, and she saw the collection by way of um, Peju Farmer Jure, who is an amazing woman who interviewed me for um, Italian Vogue and did an amazing video with me. Uh, I'm grateful to her. Serena saw my work and then commissioned some styles custom for Beyonce. And <laughs> I do remember her emailing, and of course, like we all freaked out, and then we're like. Oh, but wait, we don't have any money. So um, at the time, I had a brand director, and um, I told her I was like just, um, and again, it was a friend <laughs> who um, was donating her time for the, the benefit of the, the business and also hoping to to help us get our legs so that she could come on full time. But um, emailed her, and I said, email her and say, you know, we love this opportunity, but unfortunately, we're not able to gift to um to anyone but thank you so much we, Beyonce is a muse and, and a key point of inspiration for us all this kind of shit right and of course Zarina writes back like oh we're gonna pay for it and then of course our minds were blown because we we'd been so kind of I mean for lack of a better word I don't know business raped by way of all the people loaning or wanting to you know borrow clothes and returning them messed up and the world of loaning is just so horrible for young brands. And then Beyonce comes in and spends thousands of dollars on several custom looks. Hold up. Mm
0: -hmm. Pump the brakes. Yeah. You about, you were willing to turn this down just due to the lack of funds, obviously, which literally you wouldn't be able to make the clothes. I couldn't do it. And I, so (laughs) I can't imagine what hitting the send button must've felt like. Heartbreaking. Knowing that this this was the opportunity of a lifetime.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just, but I couldn't even. It was like getting blood out of a turnip, man. Like we, I had nothing to give. So okay,
0: so what did you do? They did you, they prepay for it? Yes. Oh no, kidding.
1: Yes, she prepaid um, several looks because they needed to be to her measurements. So these were custom looks for her. So.
0: So these are... They weren't bespoke, right? Because you didn't measure her. No, but they But sent they were custom pieces. Yeah, they oh, sent okay. measurements.
1: They sent her measurements. So for the most part, they were bespoke. I wasn't able to fit them on her body, but they were made to her measurements. I don't want to know how much, but do you charge a
0: <laughs> premium for something like that for Beyonce? We didn't. Or were right? they retail prices?
1: The thing for us being that we manufactured in New York, it was always at a premium, right? And so... Of course, this wasn't coming off of a a volume order. Um, These are just one-offs. So it's a single pattern to a single sample. And it was already going to be absurdly expensive. So it's not. we didn't pad it, and we didn't make any money off of it. Um, The only goal for us was to make sure that we got the most beautiful product to this woman that we could.
0: And I'm sorry, were you using fabrics that you had used before?
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah, we were using collection fabrics. Some of them we'd used up in our sampling and we hadn't yet cut production. So we had to do some over the counter sourcing for some of the fabrics. Um but the key fabrics we had on hand from our from the collection sampling. That's amazing. Yeah, and so that was the the first time she wore it was her first time attending the Yeezy show, the Kanye Yeezy show. Um and it was the first day of Fashion Week. I was showing, I think, day four, and all, all you know, we just wanted to get the product out to her. We were in the midst of um, also designing a new collection, so it was we had to like kind of push it in to get it done. Got it done, delivered it to her, and really, I didn't think anything else about it. I was like, I maybe she'll wear it to, to I don't know. Like a
0: basketball game. Exactly. Yeah. So I, was, yeah. I
1: had no idea. I was just like, I just wanted her to have it. I wanted it to be perfect. And when it happened, I was pleased. And then all of a sudden um, at lunch, Serena texts me and she's like, she's wearing you to the Kanye show. And I saw the text and I was like, oh, that's so great. It still didn't, like resin, it didn't hit me because I was already just so overwhelmed with everything going on. You are so
0: stressed, I'm sure.
1: So incredibly stressed. And I was just like, oh, that's so great. She's wearing it tonight. No, no. She, she didn't say she was wearing it to the Kanye show. She said, Beyonce is in Harveston tonight. Oh, that's yeah. That's all okay, she said. So And I was like, oh, she's going to dinner. Maybe she's going to wear the two-piece pink number or something at dinner. Like, I hope they get pictures. I'm just happy it's on her body. And then before I know it, there are all these, like, texts um, and images and there's stuff on Twitter of her, like, in my clothes. And I was like, what? And then side by sides, like, people figured out whose it was, and it just kept happening and going. And and then she had the fur bag with her, and then her images of um, Kim, Kim and Kanye's daughter, um Wow, North? North. Okay, North. Was, petting the bag. I couldn't remember if North Dude, was I a know. boy was or a like, girl. To have be all this stuff coming Completely out honest that. with you. Um, North petting the bag. Beyonce sitting beside Anna Wintour. Full Harbison, Harbison bustier, Harbison skirt, Harbison coat, and Harbison fur bag. And it just kept going, and um, I'm so grateful to Serena for that. And then she wore us on the um, the fight night. For,
0: I'm sure it's uh, a Mayweather fight. Yeah, it was Mayweather.
1: Yeah, um, and Pacquiao. Okay. Um, she wore us fight night, and then she wore us to a wedding. then she wore us on Instagram, and then in the midst of all of this, her sister Solange also wore um, Harbison at Paris Fashion Week, and she wore the coat of her, that her sister wore. So then they had side by sides of like Beyonce and Solange sharing, <laughs> the sister sharing the coat. Um, although Beyonce be wore a custom coat, Solange wore my sample. <laughs> um gotcha. But um uh, both of those girls are just both of those women, my apologies, are just central for me. Um for like walking muses and, and I'm so grateful to them caring and loving the collection enough to really wear it in such amazing ways. Particularly in the in in just a couple years span, before I came to LA,
0: it would seem like you were just living the jet set life after this,
1: <laughs> but
0: obviously fashion being fashion, you've already alluded to it. It beats you down. Oh
1: come on, man! I remember once my my lights being cut off in my apartment because I'd paid my studio rent and not the utilities in my apartment. And so I had to spend the night, my ex-boyfriend and I, in the studio on, like, it was in just like a one-bedroom, um, not a one-bedroom, a one-room studio. There wasn't a bathroom or anything. We just slept on, like, this carpet. We had these carpets that we would use at the presentations. And we had one in the office, and we rolled it out on the floor and slept there that night because the lights were cut off at home. Real shit like that was happening in the midst of these amazing things. I was at the white house during the same time. That's right. I yeah. totally
0: forgot about that.
1: That happened. Um, which is amazing. I spoke on a fashion entrepreneurship panel at the first lady, Michelle Obama's fashion education workshop. Um, which was an amazing experience. Um, she's amazing. Um, yeah, it just, all of these things were happening. Amazing editorials. um, But cash and holding up the business. So next impossible.
0: So one thing I ask everybody is, and I feel like I already know the answer at this point, but what's the hardest part about running your own business for you, for Harbison? Be it at the beginning, the middle, now, what's been the hardest thing? thus far.
1: The hardest thing is something not concrete. For me it's the feeling of loneliness um in the business. In the business. What do you mean by that? There's it's such a particular entrepreneurial pursuit there's so many skills that you need to have leading up to that point. So there's such a small pool of people that can relate to what you're doing. And it is a business based on so much kind of mystique. Um, And there's a lack of transparency because, you know, like fashion is largely about selling the dream ego ego as well. Exactly. So it just sets you up to, to really in those dark times feel quite, Lonely, at least it did for me. Um That's solitude I appreciate. Um singularity I love. But the loneliness, particularly when things got really hard and you're just trying to figure out what's next. Um and a lot oftentimes a lot of people can't, even the people with the best of intentions and also with the longest resumes and the most experience can't advise you because Fashion entrepreneurship is a thing unto itself.
0: That's really interesting, and that is nowhere near what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go, frankly, I just thought it was just going to be money related, just based on the the previous statements. But what? So what's been the easiest thing? Ugh. And I mean, the, it could be anything. What? What's? What? What thing? do you find easy? Designing. Yeah, that's.
1: I love what I love. I know what I love. I know what I like. It's um, not work. It's not, man. it's fun. It's, it's fun. It's a dream. Of course there's work in the midst of it. You know, there, there are things that I have to do that are laborious and sometimes exhausting, but by and large designing, man, I, I look forward to doing it until I die because I love it so much. That's awesome.
0: So what kind of advice would you give anybody else? I mean, aside from uh definitely go direct to consumer these <laughs> days versus trying to get in the pages of Vogue um what kind of bits of advice would you give somebody trying to launch a brand today
1: um have a great product I what do you what do you think forgotten.
0: constitutes makes a what what makes a good product first of all
1: i would say work backward from the things you want your product to do. So, you know, let's say in fashion it's boxers, boxer shorts. What is it you want your customer to experience? Oh, I want them to feel comfortable. Okay, what kind of comfort? I want a comfortable waistband and I want a fit that is snug but not too tight. Okay, why? Because I don't think there's a lot of those in the market right now and I can't find one for myself. Okay, cool. So then what materials are going to bring about that experience for the customer and bring about that fit in the boxer? And before you know it, so many of your answers will be, um, some of your questions rather will be answered. And then on on top of that kind of functional nature, then you can begin to uh, kind of work with the aesthetics. But I think it's important to think about a customer's experience and think about the functionality of a garment and think about creating something well like do what you do and do it exceedingly well and, and that's a piece of advice that many people have heard out of my mouth almost i think that's good
0: life advice almost you know do do what you like and do it well mm-hmm. yeah but it, it or I just from it's a lost. work ethic standpoint exactly
1: anyway. but you know in in the in the midst of capitalism particularly how it's been rendered today like it's just oftentimes just about like do something right and, and look busy look busy make money on a thing but i still just believe not only um personal responsibility but ecological responsibility we are making things that are needed we are making things that are are bringing about the demise of our planet like we can't mince words when it comes to that so at the very least if you are putting it into the world make sure that you are making it as well as you possibly can at whatever price point um and be thoughtful you know
0: so what advice do you give cuz price pricing is a really it's a fickle fickle piece of information yeah. for people um it's a touch point of sensitivity you know not everybody's rich oh, yeah. obviously mm-hmm. um but even from a manufacturing standpoint you know um what role does price play for for you do you do you design around price? Do you even contemplate price? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. How so?
1: Um, I try to not relegate it to the collection at large. I definitely, I need those pieces and those categories that are a space where I get to affect the most beautiful thing regardless of price that I can. And then there are other categories in the collection that I know are spaces where volume is important price sensitivity is important and I do try to like back into a particular price point um, for price diversification in the collection and the market kind of tells you that you know Um, your competitors their pricing will tell you where that needs to lie. Um, I've just found that to be imperative for me on a personal and an aesthetic level Um, I need a beautiful double-faced cashmere wrap coat where I'm not thoughtful. I'm not thinking about usage of the material. I'm just making it as beautiful as I can and then layering it with a trouser that I know needs to be at. um, If I do use this wool, I'm pricing myself out. So maybe I'll do it in a wool viscose blend and I'll cut the cost. It still gives me a beautiful drape. It makes it a bit sportier. Um, and I need to hit a p- particular price point, so maybe I can't put this hardware on it, so I should change it. you know maybe there's I should add a waistband and just a hidden hook and bar closure as opposed to a statement button, so I can hit that price like those sorts of things, and then a button down in a silk cotton instead of a hundred percent silk um and Maybe instead of the oversized tunic shirt that I want to do, maybe let's go for a more crop version. It still affects the same attitude, but more better usage and all those sorts of things, right? That's to support that absurdly expensive, but beautiful and covetable and heritage forever in my closet, double face robe coat.
0: Dude, you are your father's son because you broke that down. Like it was like a play in the NFL. (laughs) (laughs) Like, honestly, like I've, I I guarantee you very few people listening to this have ever thought about fashion the way you just broke it down and why things are made the way they're made. That was really, really great insight. I appreciate you sharing that because literally, I I, I guarantee you very few people even understand that. Um, Really cool.
1: That's what Um, up my brain.
0: You've met kind of an interesting intersection over the last—I don't know what—two years. You've mm-hmm. n- you moved to LA. What brought you to Los Angeles?
1: Well, um, one of my early angel investors, he and his wife—sorry, he and his husband—I <laughs> um, should say a statement again. One of my first angel investors, he and his husband, moved here from New York, and um, there's an investment opportunity that fell through for me three years ago. I also was the end of relationship and my grandmother passed away. And so I looked at everything differently, like nothing mattered in the same way after all that happened in those three months. So I came to visit um, California and um, stayed with them at their apartment and they had been big proponents of me moving here. and, And I was supposed to come for five days and I ended up staying for three weeks um, I'm still grateful to Jason and Adair, Jason Bolden, and Adair Curtis for that, and uh went back to New York and just knew that I needed to be here. I saw places where I could buy fabric. I saw places where I could make clothes and and I also saw open space and open sky, and it just affected the relief that this kind of broken hearted country boy needed. Uh, And so I came here in August, September of 2016. So it's been two and a half years for me here. And in that time, I've really been able to pivot the collection, walk into um, custom celebrity dressing, and then also um, begin building a collection with more um, autonomy and more thoughtfulness around my customers as opposed to stockist, i.e. stores. So, I'm excited about showing this new collection this year.
0: So, when... Okay. So, your last collection mm-hmm. was when?
1: It was three years ago. My last full collection. It's was autumn winter 18. Autumn winter 16, sorry.
0: Do you label it a hiatus? Do you label, uh, label it... um what what do you label a 3 year uh, grace period
1: yeah i mean i i guess i've i've called it a hiatus before um i've called it a furlough um
0: but you've also done custom styling mm-hmm. so it's not like it went away
1: no it never went away and and it still exists and i've still delivered orders and um but as far as presenting a full collection i haven't done that Um, I yeah I the thing that mattered more to me at that point three years ago was my head and my heart and I hadn't thought about those those two things hadn't been more important than this collection in three four years so finally it deserved more attention and at the point where it did deserve more attention it needed to leave new york so yeah whatever you want to call the time away like you know i've called it a myriad of things but more than anything i've called it like kind of like soul saving
0: one of the good things i think about owning your own business is you get to do whatever you want
1: dude
0: completely you literally get to do whatever you want and i don't know about you i'm sure i'm speaking for you when i say this but I did not start a business for other people to tell me what to do. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. It was literally, the impetus was quite contrary to that.
1: So there's no reason to navigate it in any other way. Right. And unfortunately with the fashion industry, they can oftentimes tell you the opposite of that. They can tell you that they determine what you need to do. And once I was kind of, broken enough to see outside of that and realize wait i actually have the onus here i have the agency here no like i don't have to live like this i don't have to be on this loop and there's got to be better ways to make better product and be better to myself and like you said it's my name on the label right literally right
0: so i think that's it's it's worth pointing out too so even though you haven't shown a full collection, you've been working for some other brands
1: and projects and helping other people and consulting and- Totally, I've been able to consult across menswear. Um, I've been able to design direct for two, um, well, one fledgling label here in Los Angeles called Cult Gaia. I build out their collection Um, From one bag, basically, to a full-fledged collection, additional bags, apparel, shoes, jewelry, all of that. Um, I design direct currently for a uh, contemporary women's brand, another one called Nicholas. I've consulted for a brand in London. I was there for a time with Ungaro. Um, Consulted for other startups in New York. So I've done a myriad of things. In this two and a half years in Los Angeles. Um, And I can say confidently it's made me a better designer.
0: I think it's really interesting and I'll just make a parallel. It's almost like music producers these days. Like everybody's featuring different people and and hiring different producers to produce X record or, or Y record. And I think that's really cool that you can sit here and say also that it's made you better as a result.
1: Yeah, man, it has. It's it's new challenges, um, new customers, new product materials, new price points. It's just it's been.
0: You've had your hands in a lot of cookie jars. Yeah, it seems like. And in in addition to that, speaking, let's talk about that for a minute. You spoke
1: at um, fashion and feminism. Yes. at the Barnes
0: Foundation. What was that about? When did that take place? So the place? Barnes
1: is an amazing um museum in Philly. Um and they had a symposium on fashion and feminism. Um, I spoke there um largely about intersectional feminism um because they know that the kind of the central muse of my collection is my mom, who's a black woman, and how I infuse a lot of my own personal um cultural iconography into the collection and um and at the same time how my customer base is uh does not in any way skew racially it's it's incredibly diverse um just as many white customers as black and and the asian as well absolutely um so i feminism intersectional feminism the highlighting of the black female in beauty and fashion spaces has been really important to me so I was able to speak about that there. Um, the year before, I spoke at MoMA, um, Museum of Modern Art, at Fashion is Kale. So the, um, they the MoMA um, presented their first fashion exhibit in some major number of years. So, Fashion is Kale. A cheeky
0: kind of name because kale was like the hot ingredient at the time
1: yes and also there's a historical reference point for that okay and i cannot speak to it because i do not remember (laughs) but i know (laughs) all right maybe at some point it was fashion is something else fashion is spinach i don't i don't know there's there's something else historical
0: so it's a reference point yes it's a reference for something
1: let's let's google kids um But yeah, that was amazing. I spoke alongside Win Zhu, who's the CEO of Philip Lim and um the former CEO of Pruenza Schooler. Um and it was an amazing conversation um between the three of us. Uh I not only learned a lot, but was able to speak and lobby for the position of independent designers on that panel. Um speaking about building a business in this climate, um, authenticity and integrity in doing so, or at least the pursuit thereof. Um, But yeah, and I've also done smaller speaking engagements largely around fashion and race um, over the past few years. Sure. From Parsons to other um, universities here in LA. It's become a really um i've come to love that opportunity and and um and I'm grateful to speak to an experience in the world of fashion that is has gone oft unhighlighted and that's like the experience of african heritage people and and african heritage muses in fashion can you
0: give us a preview of what you're about to show later this year, or <laughs> if, if not, that's cool.
1: Oh no, come on, man! Of course, it's, I
0: haven't seen sketches, man. I thought I was. You gonna haven't be seen pretty. sketches, man. <laughs> um,
1: it it what ease, what, what what's, Lots of ease. Okay. Um, the theme it's funny. There is a uh, Ty Burrell, who is an actor from Modern Family. Yes, How he's hilarious. You
0: no, you have not told me the story. Okay,
1: so there um there is that show i don't think it's on the air anymore but it would it would use your dna to um basically posit your lineage and a show on television yeah i think it was on pbs I, yeah i don't know man money. i can't <laughs> remember who but they would like it was basically like 20 <laughs> went 21 and me or 20, 23, 23 and me 23 and <laughs> me <laughs> 46 <laughs> chromosomes <laughs> so it's half, exactly ha- half of it 23 and me uh it was basically, yeah, they would take your DNA and, and basically let you know like what your likelihood of your lineage, um, and helps. Sounds dangerous, <laughs> dude. As, I mean, as a as
0: a production for television.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure if it gets too iffy, it just doesn't make it to. Oh, uh, true. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Um, but with Ty, it turns out that Ty's ancestor that brought his family to Portland, Oregon, was a black woman freed slave. So his family is in Oregon, and this freed slave garnered land on the Homestead Act. And she was freed from a Mississippi plantation, somehow made her way to Oregon. And that is how, how Ty Burrell's family is now in Oregon. And that story just really like ignited something in me because I...
0: Where did you hear that story? Um, on, on that TV show, on that show. Oh, yeah. no kidding. Okay. On that show. Got it. Got it. Got it.
1: And it just really, yeah, it ignited something in me. I mean, for me, the images of, of beauty, life, um, nurturing, nourishment, support, kindness, love, all of that were black women for me. Right. Like I was a black boy in the world and those were the faces and the, in the women, right. The, the people, not just the women, the people were were black women. And so to then have this, and to know that I'm actively um, presenting narratives around black women in my clothing for the benefit of all women and men, uh, I then looked at this story as almost an extension of that um, that desire on my part. Like you have this white man in Oregon who lives the life of a straight white man and his lineage is is connected to the hard-fought pursuit of a black woman and the interconnectivity that we can all garner from stories like that the importance to not leave anyone's story behind to not overly aggrandize anyone's story to not... um, to not extract or or leave anyone out of the narrative. That idea is just so highlighted in in a story like that. It made me think about my grandmother. Um, It made me think about what all I saw her pursue in my life. And my mother, what all I saw her pursue. It took me back to her on that set building line at the tool factory. Like, all of these things. Um, So, all that being said, there are some Western references... There are some like um, Wild Wild West iconography and things of that nature that I'm trying to kind of parse through with this collection. Um, there are some hiking references in imagining what this woman's pursuit could have looked like um, and using that as a uh, as an aesthetic point of reference for this collection. Well, I'm pumped.
0: I can't Same. wait to see it.
1: I can't wait to say it either. That's Start working on it. <laughs> right.
0: So you're in the middle of that. Yeah, we are. That's cool.
1: Sourcing has been great. Um, new materials. Um, yeah, and just telling the same story. Like, in going away, I definitely don't want to tell a different story because even in this time away, so many people still engage with the collection and the images of the collection on social media, so I'm excited
0: that's kind of the cool thing right because those images live there every day they do and they're not going away they're it's not, not like you know yesteryear where the blog post you'd have to scroll through pages and pages and pages mm-hmm. to, to find that one article i mean unless you bookmarked it obviously but um very cool that's awesome yeah man um, well, I selfishly love having you in Los Angeles <laughs> because I get to come up here and have lunch or go out to dinner or drinks and stuff, and it's always a it's riot. A ridiculous amounts of money. Um, yeah, well, we try to mitigate that, <laughs> but, you know, fashion can be a disease. <laughs> um, yeah, one of my favorite memories, actually, since you've lived here is, is uh, introducing you to the Peterson Automotive Museum.
1: Uh, i mean i i got the bug man
0: yeah yeah so let's talk about your new ride
1: (laughs) (laughs) putting me on blast
0: well that that exhibit was so the exhibit so the exhibit that was released when i when we when we went was uh it was a porsche specific event um really just like the history of of Everything Porsche, really. Yeah. It wasn't just the 911. It was it was the brand. Um,
1: Charted from the brand's inception all the way up to today. Um, like obviously,
0: yeah. I'm a Porsche nut. So what'd you buy, man?
1: I bought a Macan, a Macan S. I love her. Her name's Priscilla.
0: Priscilla,
1: <laughs> Priscilla Porsche.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that's so good. I couldn't resist, man. That's hilarious. Um,
1: I love her, man oh boy i love her
0: obviously priscilla's quick (laughs) you know she's fun you know all that stuff
1: but what what other do cars play a role at all in in inspiring your designs yeah definitely Uh, just particularly you know german cars i'd say uh same the thoughtfulness around the design the integrity around it. it you know the bauhaus was born out of a German way of approaching design. So it's just something that are, it really resonates with me. There's so much thoughtfulness in that car. There's so much uh attention to detail. Um the design is so identifiable and the 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 line of a Porsche has not drastically changed. Like it, it, the bones of it is always there.
0: Yeah, speaking of DNA. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Not far.
1: Not far at all. And I love that that kind of commitment to an aesthetic. is something that I want to reflect in my collection and get better at doing so. 100%. Uh, so, yeah, man. And also, like, just cars in general. Like, I remember my first car was my dad's um, BMW. So, it was the first car he and my mom bought was a BMW 325E 87. That's awesome. And so, when I turned 16... I got that car, and it was busted but also beautiful, and I just felt like a million bucks in that car, and I only drove it for a short while because I I was a kid. I was running it into the ground. Was um, it a manual? Yeah, it was manual. Oh, awesome. Yeah, man. I, um, lear-
0: I learned to drive stick on oh, a, yeah, on a 5 Series BMW. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was – I think it was an 84. Okay. It was my grandfather's. Who then gifted it to my uncle, I think. And he either gifted it to my uncle or my uncle bought it off him real cheap. I can't remember. But, yeah, I learned on a on a BMW myself.
1: We've never shared this story, man. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, super cool. What? Um, so, when
0: you're not designing, when you're not working, when you and Priscilla aren't hanging out, <laughs> what do you like to
1: do? What do I like to do? I'm always at some galleries museums art, yeah. art man art day in and day out um the benefit of being in la is like just being outside so the hiking culture is something that i'm a part of on a regular basis sure i'm not a fan of the gym so um well that's that the funny
0: thing too because gyms are so expensive in new york city so because that's kind of your only choice mm-hmm. on certain levels, yeah. you know, and especially in January. Yeah, exactly. Um, not your February, only choice. March, but March, April. <laughs> whereas here, you can work out outside, so Year round. the gyms are super cheap. Exactly. If you ever change
1: your mind, they're like 20 bucks a month. Exactly. So, yeah, that, man, and food, culture, I'm always eating. Um, I do miss my bike. I biked for... Most, if not all, of the eleven years—probably at least nine of the eleven years—I was in New York. I, I biked, and so I still haven't established a dialogue for for biking out here.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot for a second. Let's talk about your personal style, okay? <laughs> okay. Because no,
1: I know not you. I, today. I, well,
0: <laughs> I know you. I know your favorite moment of mine is when I worked for Gucci and yes. I was wearing suits and surfing mm-hmm. a lot and so i had a dude i had a a pretty brown tan brown and, and... i remember you just tell me like this is my favorite season <laughs> of, west. of of west <laughs> oh yeah definitely hands so, down my favorite so, season so but you you're a very eclectic <laughs> i mean i'm going to i'm just using that term generously <laughs> um be it hairstyle hair length <laughs> braid no braid throw it out i know man Man, if i were black i, I would totally have a throw <laughs> that's just... why
1: do all white boys say that
0: because you want what you can't have <laughs> but now how do you describe your personal style i mean it's it's Ooh. it's all over the place like you could yeah, dress man. it up dress it down i know in new york stereotypically it's like all black in yeah. new york
1: I don't even know how to describe my personal style. You there. started
0: rocking Vans when you first got out here? I
1: did. I went through that whole phase. But I've always been that boy. I remember like middle school and high school, like for a while, I was dating, I'm dressing like a skater kid. Never touched a skateboard in my life. Then I went through this whole alternative stage. And then I went super preppy. Then I went Abercrombie. It's just I don't I don't know there's I feel like that's
0: normal though. Yeah. Like especially back then, 90s? I mean yeah. grunge. Yeah, you had to go you through all of You had to have it. a that's flannel, true. you know, you had your Kurt so, Cobain. So you're trying to say Nirvana. like why am
1: I still doing it? No, no no, 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 no. no. <laughs> well, Hey, the 90s came back, that's why. Maybe maybe that's I mean, it's a disease, man. I love clothes. I just think they're so much fun. Right. I love the armor of it. Um just why do you use the term armor? Wow, that's a good question. Um, because I do feel like I protect myself, or at the very least, I package myself through my clothing, and it has been. A mode of self-protection it's been a mode of um, elevation it's been i've been able to use clothing to affect a myriad of things um and you know like not to get too heavy but clothing when your when your physical identities can be problematic for people right so navigating the world as a black man clothing can mean a lot of things i mean frankly speaking trayvon martin is dead today largely because of his hoodie so there's just there are so many references that they get brought up and i can just i i see how clothing has opened doors clothing has affected a a, um, a familiarity clothing has um ingratiated me clothing has comforted me clothing has made me stand up straight when i needed to stand up straight and and affect a a a class affiliation that's not my own like it's just done a lot of things for me
0: i think that's the cool thing about it too is that it can literally change who you are can man um
1: or highlight a different part of you
0: like i've i don't remember the shoe designer i can't remember who said this but um he said something to the effect of like I wanted to design a shoe because it will literally make you a different person, because you will walk differently based on the shoe you're wearing, yeah. and 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 there's there's no two ways about it. Like you exactly for a woman, for example, if she's wearing a sneaker or a high heel, no way she's walking the same way in the, Not at those all. shoes. So, but the interesting thing I think about what you were saying about the armor comment. Tom Ford, too, said the same for himself, did he? That's a lot of the reason i don't well, I don't know if he said that in an interview that I read or if it's a line that is in a single man, the very mm. autobiographical mm. film that he produced, yes. um, so those of you have't seen favorites. a single man, it was Tom Ford's first film um. Madison. shot very very beautifully um he, he did all the apparel obviously in the, the clothing and the styling um
1: i also love nocturnal animals which is his second the one.
0: second film yeah um both beautiful the house in the nocturnal animals is say. incredible it's in malibu i know exactly where it is oh yeah yeah it's insane it's like my grail house of like course you just know it concrete is. steel glass just beautiful um it's a awesome, gorgeous house. at any rate um but yeah, so you, again, kind of on that. I like that Tom Ford tip.
1: I'm gonna use that, as Tom says.
0: I've always <laughs> thought of fashion too, and we'll wrap it up here in a second. I, I think Ralph Lauren really—it's—it's it's the fantasy, right? Yeah. It takes it you away is. from whatever vitriol that you're, you know, taking into your life on a daily basis. I think it's—it's it's an escape, you know. Yeah. And then again, it also, you can dress based on your mood. I think that's what really draws me towards the industry is that almost like music, right? Like you're going to bob your head to something or tap your foot to something else of a different genre and dress accordingly, potentially. And I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I I remember saying in several interviews when it comes to the question of, you know, what is it you want your clothing to do? And I was like, well, the goal was to um, give men and women the tools to aesthetically represent themselves in the world with more power, confidence, and elegance. And I saw that, I saw clothing do that for my mother, namely, and my father and my grandmother. Um, I saw them navigate more light-footed and happier and elegant and confident on the weekends, particularly on Sundays, um, very differently from how they navigated their day-to-day lives. And I clothing completely does that for me. And I I want to give people the tools to do that more effectively, if they love what I do.
0: Well, I mean... I think, I mean, you're well on your way.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I better be. <laughs> Charles. The day is... that I'm not, West, tell me to stop. <laughs> no, man. Uh, yeah, no.
0: Full disclosure, I will do so. <laughs> I don't think we have that problem. <laughs> Charles, it has been awesome, man. Dude, thank you so much, man. Thanks for taking the time. Of course. This I do whatever great. you want me to do. All right, man. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye. I know this episode was a little longer than most and honestly it flew by for me when recording so charles thank you so much for dedicating the time always great to see you my man um, and again guys thank you so much for listening uh, can't do this without you and please visit clearaudio.com c-l-e-e-r audio.com to get uh, some of the best headphones I've ever used. Um, Quite frankly, they're just super comfortable and very, very functional. Um, The noise canceling, like I said last week, uh, is just second to none on airplanes with crying babies. And uh, in addition to that, also wanted to give a quick shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. Thank you so much for laying down the track for these episodes. And we will catch you next week. Thanks so much.